Welcome to the ninth episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have William Bird. Will, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Will. I am currently a research associate at the University of Utah in Matt Might's Ucombinator Lab, and I've been doing functional languages and logic programming languages for for quite a while now. I've been working on a logic programming language called Minicanron for about 10 years, and that started my graduate studies at Indiana University. Before that, I worked as a Java developer in a couple of startup companies, and before that, I was actually a public school teacher teaching special education, and I also was involved in organized camping. I worked at a camp called Camp Greentop in Western Maryland, and Started out as a counselor and ended up as the director of the camp my last year before starting grad school. So I've done done lots of teaching and educational type things and sort of recreational type activities and, and also lots of programming. Yeah, I wanted to get you on because of the mini Canron specifically and your, and I know the scheme background in general. So do you want to start out by kind of giving an overview of how you kind of got into logic programming? Sure. So let's see. When I was working in industry, I was working in South Carolina in Charleston for a startup company. And at some point, I was dissatisfied. Actually, I, th- I think I was always dissatisfied programming in, in Java. But I'd been hearing a lot about Lisp. And when I was taking my undergraduate CS classes, I had a very good instructor who was teaching us C programming, but he taught it in a very unusual way. And he kept using function pointers all over the place, and he introduced these weird things called cons and car and cutter, and he used recursion all over the place and taught us lots of techniques for recursion. And all the C programmers were kind of surprised by this. And then later, when I picked up a book on Lisp, I realized that basically I already knew Lisp. He had taught, taught us Lisp and C, and I became more interested in the idea of learning Lisp. So when I was working for the startup company, I decided to take an artificial intelligence course while I was working just to learn more about Lisp. And and then I learned about Scheme and became really excited about that. And I decided that I wanted to go back to grad school. And so I checked out a bunch of the grad schools. That's the whole long story itself. But International Conference on Functional Programming in 2002, I believe it was, in Pittsburgh, I met a bunch of faculty members at Different universities are involved in functional programming, and I met Dan Friedman, who's at Indiana University, and we kind of hit it off right away. So I was very excited to go to Indiana to to learn all about Scheme, and when I arrived there, I saw Dan at IU and said, oh, Dan, I'm so excited to get here to learn all about Scheme and functional programming. And the first sentence out of his mouth was, I don't do Scheme or functional programming anymore. I only do logic programming, and I think it... Something you could have told me a couple months ago, and then I would have gone somewhere else instead. But what he really meant was he was doing logic programming. So he had become very interested in in doing logic programming language as a domain-specific, maybe embedded domain-specific language on top of Scheme. So he still does Scheme, and he still is doing functional programming because it's implemented in a functional style. But for the last, I don't know, over 10 years, he's seems to have spent most of his energy on implementing logic programming languages on top of functional languages. So that's how I got involved, kind of kicking and, and screaming against my will. And in the beginning, I wasn't at all interested in logic programming. The example he showed me in class was this classic zebra puzzle. 
it's this old logic puzzle. So who who owns a zebra? And it, it's one of these puzzles that you can look at it side of, sort of like a giant Sudoku style puzzle. And once I realized, okay, well, there's this search going on. And it's kind of brute force type search, and it just didn't give me a good feeling. But then over time, I started seeing other uses of logic programming that seemed much more interesting to me than some of the, the logic puzzles. And, and even though they kind of feel like logic puzzles, they somehow feel much deeper. They're, they're sorts of things that don't, they don't look like just brute force search, even, even if that's what's going on behind the, the scenes. So what ended up happening was when I first started grad school with Dan, I thought, I'll check out the logic programming stuff for a while. And if I don't like it at the end of a year or whatever, I'll just leave. And what I ended up doing is working with him and Ole Kisilyov on a book called The Recent Schemer the first summer after you know, my first year in grad school. And it took us, you know, Dan said it would take about a week to finish the book. It took us about 18 months to write it because we had to design language and then we taught it a couple times and, and changed it over time. But that's what really got me hooked is once I started seeing much deeper what's going on logic programming. And then I think, Ole kind of blew both of our minds with this arithmetic system that appears in chapters seven and eight of the Reason Schemer, this purely relational arithmetic system where you represent numbers as these little Indian binary lists and you could do, it's just extremely flexible. So, you know, for multiplication, for example, you can say three times four is Z and then Z will be 12. Or you can say three times Y is 12 and it'll, It'll say y must be 4, or you could say x times y is 12, and I'll start enumerating all the pairs of x and y that give you 12, and all sorts of games like that. So that was a real eye-opener for me. And then I think the other big event was when we figured out how to write a relational interpreter that was decent, and that could run backwards. So you could start, you could put in the value you want your program to evaluate to, and then it will start generating programs for you that evaluate to that value. So that that's what I've been playing around with for the last maybe two years. That's really fun stuff. That sounds really neat uh, as far as the topics and different ways you can do it. I knew I've dug in a little bit to the overview of it, and uh, the concept has seemed neat, but I haven't really gotten to play with it too much, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get you in here too, was to find some of those playgrounds that would be good to play with as well. So I guess expounding on logic programming a little bit, because I know there's the concept of relational programming and functional programming, where functional programming is very declarative style, relational takes that a little bit more, and then logic is essentially even further so. Would you say that's correct? Well, unfortunately all these terms are kind of overloaded. Like the term declarative... Yeah, you know that that's a term that's widely used in academia and industry now, but it it sort of doesn't mean anything, right? It's kind of in the eye of the beholder. You really have to say what that means. You know, declarative with respect to what, or like what properties do you think are important? For example, you know, for for me, what makes the mini Canon programs nice when you can do this is when you can reorder the code arbitrarily and get the same semantics. To me, that's sort of the fundamental property. And that's something you normally can't do in like a functional language, let's say. As far as functional versus logic versus relational. So relational is also kind of overloaded because it can mean databases to some people, right? Or maybe some other things. 
here I like to use the word uh, relation just meaning a mathematical relation as opposed to, say, a mathematical function. In a mathematical function, you're making a distinction between inputs and outputs of the function, perhaps. Whereas a mathematical relation, you can see this is as a collection of tuples. Let's say three, uh, you know, you can look at multiplication, for example, as an infinite collection of three argument tuples, where, where you say three, four, 12 is one element in that set, let's say. That's one way you can look at a relation. That's sort of the database view of looking at this giant table containing everything. As far as the relational versus logic, normally I say it the other way around. So I think of logic programming, I think to most people logic programming means something like Prolog, which is a language that's been around a long time. Prolog is inspired by logic, and it seems like the way most people write Prolog programs is that they want to encode something about their problem in first-order logic or a restricted subset of first-order logic, and then they want to encode that logical specification in a programming language like Prolog. But then in order to get better performance or in order to be able to express things like negation, then they're willing to give up often some of the the nice properties, so the, what you would call the declarative properties of logic programming or mathematical logic. And they will add some features or use some features in language which inhibit that, like which inhibit, for example, the ability to reorder your code arbitrarily and keep the same semantics. And for me, relational programming, the way I use the term, the way Dan uses the term, for example, relational programming is trying to to view the mathematical relation as sort of the underlying thing that we want to model or preserve as, and not necessarily starting with first-order logic as a representation or, or a model. We might instead start with something like a scheme function and then want to turn the function into a relation. But the, the main point is we really do want a true relation where we make no distinction between input arguments and output arguments and where we can keep all of the declarative properties we care about, like reordering code arbitrarily and not changing semantics when we do that. So to me, of the three of those technologies, I would say relational programming is the most declarative in some sense. But once again, these terms, you know, you have to kind of define what you mean by these things. And, and certainly there are people doing cool stuff in functional programming who'd probably disagree with that you know people doing stuff with dependent types for example might disagree i think i was using declarative in the sense of being able to express your main program concerns without necessarily how it's being done and calculated in the background sure and so the logic and relational seems to be extra declarative in that sense because you can swap out implementations and whether or not that implementation is the driver or not, you don't really express that. You express it as a DSL of your logic or your relations in that sense. Yeah, so I guess the salient point there is that for both logic programming and relational programming or constraint logic programming, if you want to look at from that standpoint, in all of those approaches, you have some sort of set of constraints that you're specifying, and then you have a constraint solver whose job it is to actually try to satisfy those constraints. And those constraints could just be constraints using unification, which is the big constraint used in logic programming. Or it could be other other things like finite domain constraints or a host of other constraints. But the bottom line is that you're, you as a programmer are willing to give up control over how those 
constraints are actually solved. And like you said, that means you can swap in different backends. And so it's, it's tricky in some ways because the constraint solvers may be particularly good at solving certain types of constraints or you may have a limited type of constraints and you have to cast your problem into something you can model with those limited constraints. But if you are able to to model things nicely, then not only can it be very elegant in terms of the expression of the problem, but it can actually be very, very efficient also. It was one of the reasons I kind of had made an epiphany a while ago when I was starting to dig into functional programming about hating for loops and never wa- wanting to write another one again, where it's like, no, give me a map reduce because all that extra for logic is not really pertinent to what I'm trying to do. And it seems that the relational programming and all those kinds of things take that even further is kind of where I was boiling down to was, no, 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 here's the real core. You're looking for matches that you don't say filter, you just say X equals Y times three. And then it knows that it could find out anything that fits that constraint. That's right. And, you know, so so the tricky part with this style of programming is, first of all, you usually have a fairly limited set of constraints that you can use. So, you know, the problem may or may not map closely onto the sorts of constraints you have. You may have to be very clever with your encodings, your data structures and those sorts of things, data representations. And the other aspect is that if you're not careful, if you use, say, the wrong constraints in the wrong places, you might have programs that go into infinite loops or, or take very, very long time to, to come back or use you know, huge amounts of memory or so forth. And you know, there's this, this old quote about Lisp, that Lisp programmers know the values of everything but the, the cost of nothing. I think that's from... I think that was one of Alan Prellis's epigrams in programming, but I think that's even much more so with logic or relational programming. And that's why it's so tempting, I think, in, in language like Prolog to to try to get back some of the control in some some cases with things like cut and prolog to prune the search tree. And there are times where you can get away with that and it's perfectly safe. There are times you can do that and it's not safe and you have to be extremely careful with it. But as soon as you start going down that path, then it starts removing some of that declarativeness that you were talking about. Now now you're getting back more into sort of the for loop model where it's becoming much more specifying the operations or, or when things have to happen. And you start dealing more with the underlying details. So so my I see my research is really to see how far can you go if you're more naive about those things. You know, can instead of using cut as you would in a prologue program to try to control the search, can you instead come up with a new constraint, let's say, that hasn't existed before that will solve your particular problem? And can you then implement a constraint solver behind the scenes that's smart enough to do things safely and efficiently for you and let you express a larger set of problems? So that's what I'm really interested in, is saying that, yeah, prologue actually has some really cool ideas in it. One of the the downsides of Prolog is the way people tend to use it in practice is they don't, they're not using it as declaratively as they could. So my question is, okay, now let's revisit it, knowing all these things we know about constraint logic programming, having much faster computers, a bunch of other things that we know now. Can we be much more pure in a way and still express interesting problems? And what, what sorts of problems can we express that way? And now that's a little different than the way I think most people are using, say, CoreLogic, which is the closure version of Minikanron. 
I think most people using something like CoreLogic are using it more like Prolog. They want to get some job done, maybe that, that's involving search or you know it's a, sort of an AI or expertise representation. You know the sorts of things that you would do with Prolog in the seventies or eighties in these AI systems. You know they want to use those techniques, and what they really care about is getting an answer back or expressing some rules and in, in a, a fairly short declarative way. So I think that's useful. I think it's more akin to so sort of the prologue style, which is maybe less less radical than than some of the things I'm trying to explore. I remember seeing an InfoQ video with you where you were almost equating your the way you're approaching Mini Canron is closer to the way Haskell guys were approaching functional languages where you try and be as pure and no no side effects, no shortcuts, and see how far you can go with it. And that sounds like you're reiterating that again here, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that's interesting from a couple of standpoints. I mean, for one thing, it's interesting intellectually. And it's interesting, you know, as a challenge, how far can we get being purely declarative? Oleg, by the way, is sort of the person I blame for this because he, he was the one who showed me sort of the impure techniques with cut and so forth. And then I spent about a month just writing all my logic programs in that style. And then he's like, well, you know, you don't really want to overdo that. You want to try to be declarative when you can be. And then he showed me things like the arithmetic system. I was like, oh, well, that's really cool. But then I kind of took his lesson to heart maybe more than he, than he has in a way. And it's like, all right, well, he's convinced me. I really do want to be declarative every time I can. So what problems do I run into? And usually the problems have to do with negation, which is kind of the giant uh, Achilles heel that you run into over and over again with uh, logic programming. So negation is one of, one of the problems and also just expressing things in an efficient way. And, and it seems to me that the real solution to many of these problems is to have a richer constraint programming language. So when Prolog first came out in the early 70s, you had this basically one constraint, which was unification over these terms arguably a second constraint, which is disunification, saying that two terms aren't the same and can't be the same. But now we realize that, that those the prologue-style programming is actually just a special case of a much more general style of programming, constraint logic programming. And the, the unification and disunification constraints that you get with prologue basically are cons- the constraint logic programming over the domain of trees. So... There are many other types of constraint logic programming you might be interested in. And so instead of trying to stick to more of the prologue model, I'm much more interested in trying to have a more expressive language in terms of the constraints and trying to tackle the problem that way. And, and to my surprise, I haven't really seen too much work in this area. There was a little work that I've seen, but it seems like the history of of logic programming is to give up on declarativeness or at least to give you this escape hatch. And I think the question with Mini Canron is what happens if you don't ever use that escape hatch or weld it shut or whatever? It almost sounds like, and this may be a bad analogy, but it almost sounds like the concept of dynamic versus static typing languages, or at least static typing languages in a good, in a language with a good type system where the dynamic language is just a static type of 
essentially global and what the constraints are doing are starting to add more specific generalized types that you're able to build on and take advantage of is that kind of a rough parallel or am i completely misinterpreting that oh well that's I want to be very careful about getting into that discussion because uh, did you did you see um, Bob's uh, post on static versus dynamic typing? Was it Bob Harper recently tweeted something about this? Where you know he's been saying for twenty years or whatever that that dynamic typing is a special case of static typing. I think I saw something about that as well, but I've heard that before as well. And I'm not saying sure. I'm not saying it's an exact parallel, but I didn't know if it was one of those things where you start adding extra, like thinking of a type system as a constraint on types. Yeah, where the constraints and Mini Canron is working to find those constraints in the domain of the solvers. Well, okay, so so I, I'll answer it this way. I I'm hesitant to make the analogy between sort of the pure and less pure uses of logic programming, let's say, and make an analogy between that and static or dependent or static or uh, dynamic typing. However, I will say that I have been thinking about the typing a lot and there are some analogies to be made, but I, I think they're, they're of a different, maybe a different uh, viewpoint. Like, so, so I'll give you an analogy with the typing. You know, so, so there's been a lot of interest in these dependent type systems. Like, I don't know if you've seen the Idris system, for example, and there's like Agda and uh, Epigram and all those sort of things. So the idea with those systems is that the static type systems often aren't expressive enough. And th- this is really, I think, a lot of the debate about Static typing versus dynamic typing is more of that. You know, it's like, well, if I want to express certain types of, of computation or certain types of idioms, you know, do I have to do um, sort of extreme type hackery or can I can I do something more straightforward? And sometimes I've sat in Popple or ICFP talks where I saw someone talking about their dissertation topic on type system. And for a while, I was confused, and then I realized, like, oh, okay, so, so there's kind of the standard Lisp idiom that they want to be able to express with their type system, and they have to, to do all this type trickery to get there. Now, the types, in a lot of ways, can help you as well. But sometimes, you know, if you want to express certain patterns or idioms or whatever that come up in a dynamic language, it, it can be tricky to do it in a classy way in one of these static type systems. And with the this research in dependently type languages, you can express much more sophisticated properties in the type systems. So, for example, you can express the length of a list in the type, right? So if you're appending two lists, then you can have the, the length of the list embedded in the types and then check to make sure the output is going to be a, a list that's longer than the first two coming in or whose length is the sum of those two. So to me, that's really interesting. That feels sort of liberating. That's a very cool, cool direction for the types. But the connection to the logic programming is that when, when you really go for the dependently type systems, then your type checking becomes undecidable. So it could go into an infinite loop. And in, to some extent, your type system feels kind of like a logic programming system. 
And you can, in fact, Oleg likes to play games with embedding computation in the Haskell's type system and things like that. But I feel like having your type system go into an infinite loop is a perfectly reasonable thing to be able to do. You know, I don't care if the compiler goes into a loop. You know, if you believe in things like uh, scheme macros, compilation already could go into an infinite loop or with the templates or things like that in C++. You know, it, as you get into these more expressive ways of having abstractions, then maybe you're willing to give up decidability. So I think in some sense, maybe the dependent types and the logic programming feel feel closer together. I know that's not exactly the analogy you're going for, but that's probably the one I'd be more likely to make. That's fine. I was just trying to use an analogy to try and help me understand the different concepts of those constraints and how those constraints play in, in that from someone who's got a cursory and without having a full grasp of the fundamentals of relational programming. So I was trying to equate it to something I kind of knew about instead of... Yeah, sure. And, and wasn't sure how apt of an analogy that was. So Yeah, so, so we're in this situation now where lots of people are discovering functional programming, right? But there really, there really hasn't been that sort of explosion with with logic programming, let's say, right? So I think there's starting to be signs of more interest in logic programming now, but it is true that I think it just feels conceptually less accessible, you know, sort of maybe sort of the way that logic programming was 10 or 15 years ago. I remember before going into grad school, talking to other developers in industry about functional programming, and most of them, you know, they'd be like, well, I think I've heard of that or, or whatever, but it's a very different environment now, I I feel like in terms of being able to go to the bookstore and actually seeing a fair number of books on Scala or Clojure or things like that, right? Focuses JavaScript, functional programming style, JavaScript, stuff like that. You know, that just didn't exist in the same way, I think, a decade ago. So maybe in another decade, there'll be a similar interest in logic programming. But right now, it just seems harder to get into. And I think not too many people are really comfortable with those ideas. And most of the books out there are, are really books about prologue. And prologue is a fine language in many ways, but it also in many ways is, feels like a product of the 70s. And it doesn't feel particularly pure to me. And also it prologue itself doesn't have a lot of the constraint logic programming extensions that you could see in sort of more modern systems. There are lots of implementations of prologue that have constraint logic extensions, but you know, sort of the, the standardized prologue language feels much more conservative and much more based around things like unification and, and has all these kind of non-declarative features that are, that are considered really important, like cut. So I've been trying to work with Dan and other folks on, on trying to make logic programming more accessible, which is one of the ways, you know, one of the reasons I like to give talks and, and write, write about these topics, but I'm always, always feel like we're, uh, we haven't really quite gotten there that that it's very difficult to to get some of these ideas across to people. I, I remember having a, a talk with with a famous logic programmer who liked functional programming, and he's been teaching programming language courses for a long time. And he said that when he would teach a, a course with you know thirty students or whatever on programming languages, everyone could understand the C model. Okay, and then when they got the pointers. Then he would lose a fair percentage of class. And then when he got into object-oriented programming, a lot of people kind of 
didn't understand the abstractions there and he'd lose more of the class. And then he would get into functional programming and lose more of the class. And then he would get into things like monads. And then it would be, you know, the math major in the middle of the front row really understood everything. And then he would get to logic programming. And, and he thought that basic logic programming was as hard to understand as sort of functional programming with monads and so forth. I don't know that that necessarily has to be the case. I think that might partly just be an artifact of, of what sort of things people normally learn first in terms of programming. But it is, it is true that logic programming separates you from the underlying implementation to a greater extent than almost any other programming paradigm I know of. And I think a lot of the struggle people have learning logic programming is trying to form a mental model of what will actually happen when I run this program. And that's why I think a lot of the programmers, when they see something like Minikandran, what they first want to do is jump to the implementation and try to understand the implementation very deeply, hoping that that will teach them how to, to write the programs. And to some extent, that might be useful. But I, but I also think that, especially once you add, start adding more and more constraints, I'm not sure it necessarily follows that understanding the implementation is going to... I think for the more complicated examples, you're going to have a hard time thinking of, of these things operationally. You have to, at some point, be willing to give up some of the operational details and think at a higher level of abstraction and try to think, okay, so, so what, are, what are the constraints trying to express and think much at a much higher level, at the level of logic, level of the constraints, and, and be willing to give up on some of those implementation or operational details. And, and that, that actually may be one of the harder things that programmers have is, is being able to let go of that and just kind of embrace the, the more declarative model in their head. That makes me think of two different things, and they're completely different. But the two things are SQL, in which you're trying to do that anyway, and property testing. So I guess, what do you think of using SQL as an example of where developers are usually used to doing that anyway and say it's kind of like again not equivalent to writing in SQL but where you yeah. write your in your language and you don't necessarily care how the database does it because you may be writing Oracle or Microsoft or Postgres or any other any of these others but you're expressing it in these relations in a way anyway right yeah I, I think SQL is a, a fine example of that relational database model in general really is a, a model of this relational thinking and something like mini canron or or prolog can be seen as maybe generalizations right or more powerful versions of the relational database model and in fact there's there's a language called datalog i don't know if you've seen much about that but now that's sort of an integral part of rich hickey's new database system the datomic system right so datalog is part of the interface for that and that's basically you can look at it a couple of ways, but you can either look at it as like a super SQL or you can look at it as a sort of less powerful prologue. But I think SQL is a good way or SQL is a good way of thinking about it. If you really want to write SQL, it's going to run under a bunch of different database implementations. You it may not be wise to be trying to optimize it, right? Because you know there may be optimizations going on in the, in the different engines that you'll be counteracting if you try to optimize this code. To some extent, that's that's the situation we see ourselves in now with assembly language and things like that. Now there's so much dynamic reordering within the chip and those sorts of things that you know when. And in fact, this is even more so on a GPU. 
where you see things with like the PTX assembly for NVIDIA chips, which isn't really the actual assembly or the actual machine code that that's being executed. So, so one of my friends at Utah was just telling me about his experiences trying to deal with the PTX instruction set and trying to do some tricks with that. And it turns out that not just the compiler, but it seems like the underlying hardware did some very unexpected things. And you know, one of the lessons there was that at some point, you know, there is a cost to our abstractions, and the cost to some of these abstractions may be that we're not allowed to to play some of these optimization games that are tempting to play. That in some cases they may hurt us. So it's the same thing, I, could, I guess, with something like SQL. This, you know, you're you can try optimizing it in certain ways or writing your SQL in certain ways, but if a new engine comes out that optimizes that code differently, then you might have actually hurt the optimization potentials. And as far as the property-based testing, I think that's also interesting. So, so are you talking about things like QuickCheck? Yeah, things like QuickCheck and all the different variations across the different languages where you're thinking about, and I actually had a comment today on the Jessica Care episode that just happened today as we're recording, but he was talking about seeing property checking as designed by a contract, and I responded with, it's, yeah, essentially you're setting up invariance and thinking in invariance of your program, and it seems like property testing designed by contract are another way of thinking about that with, I guess, Minikanran, where, but Minikanran, you just describe your invariance, and then you let your program figure out how it's going to set up, satisfy those invariants. Is that? Well, the, yeah, I think that's part of the dream. So, Actually, my first internship was for Bertrand Meyer, who did Eiffel, and he did the whole design-by-contract mechanism. So I've been interested in, in contracts for a long time and, and that sort of style. Yeah, so, so the cool thing about sort of the pure relational programming or pure logic programming, where you're not adding these extra logical operators like cut that sort of inhibit your ability to run backwards, is that if you really don't make a distinction between the inputs and the outputs to a function you're modeling as a relation, let's say, then you can not just say the value you expect and try to generate the inputs that, that correspond to that value, but you can also, at least in some cases, specify program properties. So, for example, something that's been very useful for that is these eigenvariables. The Oleg first showed us a long time ago, but more recently Dan and his student Jason Heeman have been playing around with a, a new implementation of that in Minikandran. And this basically gives you a form of universal quantification where you can say for all X, something holds. We already have something like existential quantification. There exists an X such as the souls. But with the combination of the existential and the universal quantification, you can very succinctly express mathematical properties of programs you care about. So, for example, there's the famous Y combinator, the fixed point combinator in Lambda Calculus that allows you to express recursion. So you can write that the definition is there exists some fixed point combinator f. So there exists f such that for all x, f of x equals x of f of x. That's a, a definition of a fixed point combinator. And if you have a relational interpreter written in Minikanran, in pure Minikanran, and you have eigenvariables in your definition of, of Minikanran, then you can just express that formula just like that. 
and many Canron will actually find and generate fixed point combinators. Currently, it's still slow. It takes you know the order of ten minutes by implementations to, to generate that. But but the fact that you can do it at all, I think, is pretty cool. And it's similar with Quines, where you can say we want a program where the input to the interpreter is identical to the output of the interpreter. And if you express it that way, then Minicanron will generate quines. In that case, it's very fast. It's, you know, a couple tens of milliseconds will start generating quines for you. So so this is something I'm really interested in, is this is sort of like a flip size of a coin, that when you're in pure logic programming or pure relational programming, expressing a program property, checking a program property, generating a program that has that property, you know, they're they're all related very closely. So there's really not that much distinction between checking a program property, checking that it holds for all values, or actually generating a program that has that property. So that's sort of what I've been doing more recently is trying to find wider classes of problems where I can express the semantics. Um, and the nice thing is when it works, the semantic specification looks almost exactly like the math. It's very, very short. Relational interpreter is about as long as the semantics, if you wrote them out in math. So got these very, very short programs and starting to get to the point where they can do some, some cool synthesis. But I think we're going to need some more tricks and techniques, maybe some AI techniques to speed things up. But so far it seems, seems promising and, and it's also just a great mental problem. It feels like far, far more satisfying to me to do things like generate the Y combinator just for the mathematical specification or quines from their mathematical specification than to do like the zebra problem. And you also touched on in your SQL comment, one of the other things that seems appealing, at least to me, about logic and relational programming is you introduce the abstractions and you start getting away from the optimizations where at a certain point, maybe if I'm trying to solve business problems, I don't want to deal with the optimizations too much. Sure. And let people who are like you, who are smart and focused on this specifically, deal with being able to optimize that code for whatever platform or whatever subcompiler or IL needs to be done, instead of me having to go litter. Well, okay, well, for, for a Sudoku problem, it's 1 through 9 in these cells, except when I'm in this case, because that's going to be too slow, so now it's something else, and then you start losing a lot of that because you're trying to optimize for speed in your programming and you don't get to take advantage of the general optimizations that everybody can take advantage of. That's right. And I guess the nice thing about having having these constraints, as we had more constraints to the system, is that then you don't have to make a trade-off. If your problem maps onto any of these constraints, like Sudoku is a good example, right? So that maps onto the fine domain constraints quite nicely. If you have a sort of problem that maps on the constraints, then your solution can both be very, very succinct and capture the high-level logic and intent, and it can be extremely efficient, more efficient than, than most handwritten solutions would be because you know, you've got this potentially very sophisticated constraint solver behind that knows all these properties of finite domains and so forth. And you could write it by hand if you wanted to, but it would be a big undertaking. So that, to me, is kind of the, the most exciting possibility is coming up with a set of constraints that let you express interesting problems related to, say, program synthesis, where you can do things like write little interpreters for the language of your choice and then 
with a combination of your interpreter and some program properties that you would sort of properties you might specify in quick check, but specifying those in mini Canran or a language like that. And then maybe also giving some examples and counterexamples between those three things. It's, it feels to me like you should be able to make use of that information in novel ways that, that no system I've currently seen is doing. And so that's something I'd like to do so there are systems that can try to synthesize programs from examples and counterexamples. There are systems that can try to synthesize programs from giving some axioms or program invariants. With mini Canron, you can actually just specify the relational interpreter and then give the expected output and they'll synthesize programs, which I haven't actually seen before. But I think the real power would come in, in combining these approaches in some ways that where you can leverage the benefits of all of them together. And that's actually, that doesn't seem so uh, simple to do, actually. But I think if we can figure out how to do that, that would be very cool and potentially very useful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that is intriguing me about logic programming as I start to generally get into some of those concepts and expand my knowledge around a bunch of different areas of programming. Yeah, and, and I think things like the quick check approach where people are thinking about their program properties or with the contracts. seems like all of these are steps in the direction of, of thinking a much higher level about program properties in general, right, without getting too concerned with the implementations. And I, I think even functional programming is making, which is already fairly high level, but I think it's also you're seeing this trend of, of trying to get away from maybe implementation details. And QuickCheck does that, for example, right? Like if you're writing down the properties for your programs, like you, you kind of don't care exactly how quick check is generating these things, right? You know, you can kind of treat it like a black box. The only thing that matters to you is actually it works well enough in practice to help you find errors in your code. So I think we're going to keep seeing this trend towards higher abstractions, towards higher level specifications of programs, program properties, and away from the implementation details. So slightly different topic but still related and this was an idea I had based off a co-worker's question to me was he was starting to think about he's like yeah I'm starting to think about going from essentially constants to variables and starting to think in sets and he was like well now that I'm starting to understand how set things work I might have to start to dig into kind of thinking in graphs more Hmm. and one of the things I started thinking about was I kind of responded to him, and I'd be interested to have your opinion on it and essentially shoot me down and poke holes in the concept at the high level, at least, was that going into things like relational programming from more of a SQL perspective was kind of that making that move into thinking in sets and that things like logic and relational programming in the mini Canron sense was kind of taking your program and essentially basing your program execution on graphs and the different relations between nodes and elements in a graph. Is that... What is your thought on that? Because that was a kind of half-baked idea, but I figured talking to someone who's thinking about logic programming, is that kind of how logic programming is working, where it kind of ties in with thinking in graphs? Because it also seems something similar to like some of the graph databases as well, that you could start to build on something that not quite approaches prolog, but approaches prolog and a little more than normal things would. 
Sure. Well, I think there is overlap between you know, relational programming and things like data log and, and like the graph databases. So, so I, th- I think there are data log systems that actually are fairly close to graph database systems in a lot of ways. And I recently came across a paper or two about that. But as far as the set stuff goes, that's a little trickier maybe. What I would really, really like are set constraints. And it turns out that that is still largely an open problem of how to do set constraints for constraint logic programming. A lot of people have worked on this problem. It appears to be very difficult. Part of the problem is that almost everything interesting that you'd want to do turns out to be exponential in terms of its complexity. And one of the reasons is that normally we're used to dealing with sets as here's a set that has five elements and the elements are A, B, C, D, E type thing. Problem is with logic programming, you might have a set, even if you know how many elements are in it in a way, the elements of the set might be let's say X, Y, and Z, where those are all logic variables. Okay, if X, Y, and Z are elements, and if you're allowed to have a set with, you know, like a multi, if you're representing things in a way where it's more like a multi-set representation where you can have duplicate elements, then not only don't you know which concrete values X, Y, and Z stand for, but you don't even know if X and Y are the same value. They could be, they could not be. So you end up with all these possibilities. And that's you know that's only if you know exactly how many variables are in this representation of your set. If you have something like x, y, dot, z in scheme, let's say, where you know, you know you have x and y, but z itself could represent an extension to the set, could be arbitrarily long, then dealing with sets becomes even trickier. So if you want to deal with sets in a, in a very pure relational way. Turns out that that's quite tricky. There's some ways to do it using membership and non-membership constraints, which is kind of what I'm playing around with right now, and that's probably the way I'll go for the uh, near future. But in a sense, sets aren't very easy to represent in, in pure constraint logic programming or pure logic programming. There are lots of impure variants that that aren't as relational as they could be, where you put restrictions on on the sets, on the representation of the sets, or how ground they have to be. Say, hey, we can do a sets as long as we know exactly what the elements are in the set at any given time. Then the problem's not so hard. You can restrict it in various ways. But if you really want sort of the full generality of constraint logic programming, then sets turn out to be very tricky. So certainly there are some connections between... SQL and, and sets and those sorts of things. And you can look at, like I said before, one way to look at a relational representation of multiplication, for example, is to look at these triples of 3, 4, 12, right? And you could imagine enumerating all of those possibilities, right? That would be one way to look at things from a set standpoint. But in practice, if you want to start doing set-level manipulations as your main area of interest, then it gets very tricky. Okay, so for people who are interested in digging into logic programming a little more, is there any good problems or domains that you would point them to to start getting an idea for a sandbox to work with or or domains to stay away from because you're going to get into your head very quickly if it's applicable at all? Uh, okay, well, that's a good question. I would say, first of all, I think it depends on what the person's interested in doing or learning. Right. So 
if you're interested in doing something like implementing a rule-based system as part of your application, then I, th- I think looking at something like CoreLogic is, is quite nice because there have been a fair number of examples now of people using CoreLogic to do exactly that sort of thing. Add some high-level declarative reasoning to, to an application as part of a, a larger application. If you want to look more into this pure relational aspect, uh, sort of the things I'm talking about with, you know, like the relational interpreters, that's a little trickier. Maybe <laughs> look at my dissertation. So there are lots of resources available on minicanron.org. That's a place you can look. So my dissertation's up there. That's somewhat accessible. There's also the scheme workshop paper that we wrote on relational interpreters. That gives you a little bit of a of an intro. I don't think there's any a particularly good starting place, though, unfortunately. So what I'm doing right now is I'm working on a book. Uh, it'd be a relatively short book, probably, but the intent will be to to try to explain in a more understandable way for folks maybe who aren't familiar with logic programming or don't know a whole giant body of theory of programming languages sort of what the relational approach is about and using as the running example or, or sort of the culminating example would be the relational interpreter that can generate quines and run backwards and, and do all those sorts of games. So so I've been working on that book and I, I hope that will be finished in, in a few months and, and that that actually will be a starting place. And hopefully a combination of that and I'll... I want to start returning to do some Google Hangouts, that sort of thing, to try to make it more accessible. But right now, I think it's it is kind of hard to get into. You know, if you just want to do logic programming stuff as as it's traditionally been done, there are lots of prologue books out there that are really good. There's things like The Art of Prologue. Another really good book is Bracco's book on it's like artificial intelligence in prologue or so something. I, I forget the exact title, but has all those words in it. So that's a, a really interesting book full of cool AI techniques and prologue. Once again, both of those books are using sort of the traditional prologue approach, and they're, they're happy to use impure operators when it helps them in terms of expressivity or whatever. And uh, at least the art of prologue doesn't have a whole lot about constraint logic programming beyond unification. Bratko's book has a little more about that. He talks about finite domain constraints, for example. So, you know, there's all the existing prolog literature, there's core logic stuff or traditional logic programming. And then for the relational stuff, it's sort of in the works, but right now I'd probably point people to my dissertation, maybe the reason schema is kind of getting out of date. Also that scheme workshop paper. Okay. Yeah, I remember seeing the mini Canron site. Also with that, I saw there was a bunch of different implementations of people taking the mini Canron and putting it to that language, because I remember seeing CoreLogic for Clojure, and there looked like there were some, even a Ruby and some other language ones that you would not necessarily think about relational programming, or or at least to begin with, of thinking that, so... Sure, so... For people kind of, like, trying to get that in and have a concept, where it was like, this concept sounds neat, but where do I go find more information? So it sounds like, go check out Minicanron and some of the libraries, and maybe documentation about some of those other libraries that could be used. Yeah, so if you go to minicanron.org, you'll find a bunch of implementations of minicanron in different languages. So there are four implementations in Python that we have linked to, for example. So people can play around with it. You know, so the one nice thing about minicanron is it's small enough to easily be embedded in 
various host languages. So if you want to program in Ruby, you want to program in Python or whatever, you can find implementations. But there are, there are implementations in Common Lisp and Haskell and a bunch of other languages at this point. So, so that's really, I guess that's one of the, the nice things right now is that you can use logic programming either in a pure way or, or more in the prologue way, and you can do it from within whatever host language you want. And I, I think that's where we're seeing most of the uses of, say, CoreLogic is within a bigger application where they don't want to write the whole application in Prolog, let's say, even if they know Prolog. They want to write most of it in a functional style or an object-oriented style or whatever. But they want part of the application to, to have this logical inference and these rules and so forth. So if you have a problem like that where you're writing a large application but you need sort of a rule-based approach or some inference-based approach or you need to do some logical reasoning at some point, then that's probably a pretty good sign that something like Minicameron would be useful. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Do you have any upcoming appearances or past appearances that you have, that you know that there's recordings on? Any other projects that you might be involved with? Or just any other things that you would like to recommend to the audience? Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank all the people I've worked with on Mini Canron for all these years. So, you know, Dan Friedman, Ole Kislyov definitely were the two people I, I worked with at the beginning. And we've worked with lots of very uh, talented students at this point. And the danger of trying to name people is that I'm always going to leave people out. So, you know who you are. Thank you very much for, for all your efforts. I'd also like to thank Matt Might for all his support at the University of Utah. It's been a fun lab to work in. Well, one thing I will semi-plug just because I think it's it's useful in terms of you know what other resources are out there is that you know I've given some talks Dan Friedman and I have given talks Nadam and I have given talks many of which are on minicanon.org and other people have as well so you know David Nolan's given some talks on the implementation of CoreLogic and several people have given sort of introductions to CoreLogic and how you program in those so if you look at minicanon.org some of the talks I think are they may not give you all the technical details you need to write serious mini Canon programs, but they at least will maybe give you a good demonstration of the sorts of things you can use mini Canon for and or CoreLogic for and maybe inspire you to want to learn more. In particular, the Closure Conj talks and the Strange Loop talks that Dan and I have given, I think those are... Those are probably pretty good places to start, especially when we demonstrate the Quine generating interpreter. I think that's that's a cool program that looks and feels very different from something like Sudoku. So when people see logic programming used for things like solving Sudoku, they're like, "Oh, well, that's that's fine, I guess." But that's you know just kind of a toy. But when you're implementing interpreters for Turing complete subset of of scheme, and the interpreter is written in this very recursive style and it's dealing with symbolic data, then then it feels more real in a way, I think. It feels like, oh, okay, I could see could see doing something really powerful with this. So I think those are, are things to look at. I'm giving a, a talk at Lambda Lounge, Utah next month on Mini Canron, giving a Mini Canron night. And I think that's about it for things coming up. The other thing is, you know, I am working on this book, which is basically on how to write the relational interpreter in Minicanron, trying to make that accessible. And, and that's going to be released under a Creative Commons license. So hopefully people enjoy that. So so look for that. Sounds like great things to check out and uh, continue to dig in on. What's the best way for people to find you 
online if they want to follow you and keep up to date with what's going on? I'm Webberd, W-E-B-Y-R-D, at Twitter, Webberd at Gmail, Webberd at GitHub. <laughs> so those are probably good places to look. Okay, yeah, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes and make sure that anybody can find out what's going on with you and your progress as part of the podcast. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and once again, I would like to thank Will for giving us time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. All right, and um, thanks to you too, Proctor. I appreciate this. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.